0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Performance and Rugby Operations at Dragons Rugby, Hugh Bevan. for tuning in to episode 159 of the pacing performance podcast so as i've just said um we have hugh bevan on the podcast who is coming from dragons rugby so in this episode with hugh given hugh's kind of diverse background uh, and the the sports that he's come from uh we discussed the challenges moving across sports um and it's that's something that i've discussed a couple of times with a couple of different guests but I think Hugh's take from coming, from becoming a teacher and then moving into professional sport, into cricket, and then from cricket into rugby. So that's a really interesting chat and how Hugh dealt with that and kind of affected things on a, on a coach level just as much as a performance level. So on that note, we discussed building relationships with players and coaches, and I know firsthand what a fantastic relationship him and the head coach at the Dragons have got. Um, and we also discuss uh, utilising GPS uh, and a couple of the things that the Dragons are doing um, which may be quite similar to, to other other um, other sports and a couple of the definitions that, that Hugh gives uh, may be quite familiar to people but it's just nice to hear what kind of things these guys are doing. There'll be something in there that is uh, maybe slightly different to what you're doing or uh, maybe just give you a a couple of ideas on um on how to implement things especially that delivery to coaches
1: as a young snc i would have i would have been more inclined to go and tell them what they needed rather than speaking to them about what it was they wanted and then trying to develop that so i think if you try and impose something it, it can be quite difficult unless unless it works immediately
0: Just before we get into the chat with Hugh, just want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, and Human Track. So the Human Track is the only Connect and IMU combined motion capture system uh, that fuses the data from both um, the the Connect and the IMUs to be able to calculate power, joint forces, range of motion, etc. etc. So if you are interested in um, any of them three products get over to valdperformance.com um, and have a little look and dig a little bit deeper into, uh, into the, the bits of kit that they have. Also big thanks to Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. So Force Decks, uh, is a hardware and software force play solution. So if you are interested in anything to do with jump monitoring or Force Decks, check out Uh, episode 139 of the podcast where dr daniel cohen not only talks about force decks but uh, jump monitoring um as a whole and goes into some really fantastic depth um for those that are, uh, are interested in that type of thing so definitely worth uh checking out episode 139 so over to the chat with hugh hope you enjoy again would love any feedback that you have um and yeah hope you enjoy the podcast Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, this evening, I'm pleased to welcome Hugh Bevan, who is the Head of Performance and Rugby Operations at the Dragons. So, welcome to the podcast, Hugh.
1: Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: Nah, it's a pleasure, mate. Uh, anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a, uh, a background on yourself and uh, education, experience, and what, what you're currently doing at the Dragons. So, um,
1: currently, I'm, um, as you said, Head of Performance and Rugby Operations at the Dragons. So, fundamentally, I look after... Uh, all the support services, S&C, uh, physio- medical, uh, and also quite a bit of the of, uh, administ- administrative duties as well that, uh, to support uh, Bernard in his, uh, and his team. Nice. So what, what did you do before you at the Dragons? So prior to, I've been at the Dragons now for, this is my fourth year. Prior to that, I was uh, uh, S&C with the England cricket team. I was with them for six years. Which is sort of coincided, fortunately, with a sort of a very successful period during uh, uh, for England cricket. Uh, prior to that, I was head of strength and conditioning at the Ospreys. Again, I was there for five years or so. Uh, previous to that, I was at Bridgend Rugby Club and Cardiff Rugby Club as S and I worked also at uh, Glamorgan Cricket Club. And then prior to that, I was uh, I was a physical ed- uh, teacher of physical education for ten years, uh, having completed a degree at uh, what was then Valley Institute of Higher Education.
0: What did the? How did the first kind of ten years as a teacher help you along the way? What happened after that? And going into high performance sport. I think.
1: Uh, being a teacher of physical education, particularly in a sort of a values comprehensive school, uh, taught me a huge amount uh, in terms of uh, building relationships with people um, and just give me a general grounding in, in sort of working with people in general. Uh, I think I would recommend it as a as a as a means of developing your skills to have to sort of deal with thirty or forty. Um, teenage children and, and, and get them to engage in what you're trying to deliver. I think it's a really good, really good means of developing your coaching practice.
0: Mm-hmm. We had uh, Kelvin Giles on the podcast quite well, pretty over a year ago now. But he obviously came through as a teacher um, and has some very interesting thoughts on, on what that did for him, which I guess is pretty similar to you. If you can deal with 30 teenage kids, you're dealing with kids a lot of the time anyway in high performance sports, yeah. so it, it gives you good grounding.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I think it keeps up with a sort of range of skills that are really transferable, and there's lots of talk about transferable skills, but you're faced with uh, a different challenge every day, and every every lesson almost you can be faced with a different challenge with a different set of circumstances. Uh, pupils with a range of different needs, and being able to sort of um, cater for those needs and ensure everybody gets... Uh, something positive of the experience is, uh, is 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 a real challenge. And it's something that uh, does give you a good grounding, I believe.
0: Mm-hmm. So I just want to talk to you a little bit about that transition from cricket to rugby. Um, yeah. Obviously from cricket, probably a sport that's um, not known for its kind of adoption to yeah. traditional kind of strength training, to a, 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 yeah. obviously rugby that 100% is you Just want to talk yeah. a little bit about how you managed that transition and and, and what a transition was like.
1: Well, it was um, obviously I started off in in rugby, and when I when I was my first role in S it was uh, at Cardiff Rugby Club, and I worked with a lady there called Jane James, whose husband was uh, Steve James, who was captain of the Glamorgan cricket team, uh, and he he was sort of. Um, Quite innovative at the time, I suppose. It was uh, he. He approached me to go and do some um, conditioning work with with uh, the Glamorgan side at the time, uh, and I did that on a sort of um, part time basis, if you like, uh, for about six years. And uh, I really enjoyed it. They were a great great group of uh, players who were very keen to learn and uh, were keen to try new things. And they were they were it was quite an easy sell with them actually because um, the the um, uh, environment that Steve and John Derrick, the late John Derrick, had created was one where they were, they were very keen to improve in any any way they could. Uh, now later on, when I became uh, when I started work with the England cricket team, I had obviously had then had a lot of experience in, in rugby. Uh, I started actually with a uh, age group cricketers, and again it was uh, pretty straightforward in terms of in terms of. Uh, um, they were open to me saying well if you do this you're going to become a better player Uh, my first actual my first engagement actually with the england team was uh, to take six fast bowlers to uh, a camp in florida and and it's a purely an camp, and it was was all about developing their their athletic abilities so there was a a, quite a strong group in there there was people like uh, chris jordan jade durnbach chris walks guy called jonathan Clare. uh and Maurice Chambers who, who were there with me and they again it was um, they were all really sort of um they understood why we were going and they bought into it 100% and it was it was very very straightforward uh, when I actually then got the job with the England senior team um it was slightly more difficult because there was people there who were who were already well established um world class players and some of them were uh, already engaged in uh, a um, uh, conditioning program, or engaged in the value of conditioning, and some of them, let's say, weren't so much. So I, ha- I had to find, figure a way to try and engage all of those people in a program and sell to them the the benefits of strength and conditioning uh, in terms of uh, improving their cricket performance. You know, and and that's some some of those people were easy to convince and others less so and I think uh, cricket as a sport still has some very um, traditional beliefs uh, amongst some coaches and amongst some uh, senior figures and I think that's it's a long way that whilst the majority you would say now are, are uh, convinced about the benefits of uh, strength and condition there are still some people who perhaps are less convinced than uh, you quite frequently hear people talking about being that well to get fit for bowling you need the ball and this sort of thing, and and don't and dismiss any other form of training as uh, unnecessary and even uh, even potentially detrimental so in terms of selling that i i it was quite a difficult challenge for me because when you move from rugby you think uh, where you're in an environment where it's not very difficult really to get people to Want to be bigger and stronger because they know there's a direct relationship between that and improving performance. Whereas cricket, that isn't necessarily the case. So, for a while, I just sort of um, observed uh, what they were doing, um, tried to add value where I could, and uh, what I built a strong relationship with um, the uh, fielding coach at the time, a guy called Richard Harssell. Uh, again a former PE teacher and, and sort of a rugby player and uh, I thought the, the, the most uh, the easiest way I suppose to convince the guys uh, that improving their essence uh, improving their strength and condition will actually um, benefit their performance was through developing athletically and then enhancing their feeling so I tied up with Richard quite a bit uh, we worked on drills and activities Uh, that would a uh, develop them athletically and b develop their their actual specific fielding skills and then once we started talking about speed and power there was a window there of opportunity for me to get in and say okay well if we really want to develop our um, speed and power we need to start sort of looking at a structure strength training program and so on and uh, that's that's how we managed to get buy-in into that into
0: that sort of um, into that um, approach. So, at that point in time, how were you then taking that on a stage to actually measure the impact that you were having on the on the on the field?
1: Yeah. Um, the, the so we knew, for example, we we we, um, we had uh, assessment of fitness testing uh, biannually in uh, at Loughborough. Uh, we changed the focus of the of the testing. Because um, my, my strong belief is if you measure something, people will improve. So if they think they're going to be measured, they, they don't want the, everybody. They're competitive by nature. So what you measure is what, you, is what you're improving. So di- traditionally, con- uh, strength conditioning for um, cricket was a, a massive focus around the endurance and in particular the bleep test. So that was fundamentally what the players prepared themselves for was to score well on the bleep test. So, what we did there we we changed that slightly to give it a bit more balanced balanced approach we included sort of um uh, just some fundamental tests in terms of uh, body composition. we did some counter movement jumps and squat jumps we did um twenty meter sprint uh, and we did a beep test which was um, then uh, eventually superseded by um uh, by the um yo-yo so what we were looking for and then then we developed this uh, point system. Where so rather than having uh, so so your score was rated from north to ten, uh, based on your achievements in uh, each of those tests. So then we could see whether there were some guys who were overemphasizing the endurance aspect. Some some guys were uh, obviously uh, struggling with their body composition, uh, and we we then just try to get our athletes that were that had a balanced approach to to their training. And then equip them with the programs etc that underpinned uh, the development in the area that uh, they were they were one they were sorry if they were uh, if they were particularly strong in a particular area we'd want to maintain that as a super strength but uh, also then try and sort of rectify some of their weaknesses particularly if they were impacting on performance so uh, measuring that was is quite difficult in cricket uh, for certain, someone like we know for certain, someone like Alastair Cook, um, had a, uh, was outstanding in terms of uh, aerobic endurance, and his performance in uh, particularly hot, humid environments, where he could bat and perform over an extended period of time, and, and sort of um, uh, continue to make good decisions when he's under duress and pressure you know there, there was a we made quite a bit quite a bit of that you know that that was an important consideration was that he was extremely fit uh, people like Andy Strauss who was captain when I when I was appointed was uh, very explosive very dynamic very quick um, and bought into the whole strength and conditioning um, ethos that we were trying to involve I mean, in fact he was he was central to it him and Andy Flower Um, I think when when Andy was appointed, I think just after there was a a, a test match in the West Indies where England were voted for 52 and then there was an opportunity, there was sort of a line in the sand moment there where they said, okay, if we are going to improve, then the culture has to change. And one of the things that they wanted to change and and embraced was um, making sure that when you represent England, you're in a physical condition that's going to enable you to perform at your best. So that was, uh, again, um, you know, it opened the door for me to, to uh, get buy-in from all of the players. You know, I, I was pushing against an open door to, to a, in a certain extent at that point Cause, um, because within, in cricket, uh, more than any other sport, obviously, the captain is hugely, hugely influential you know, he has massive, contrib- massive say in selection and so on. And if he's saying in order to play for England, you need to be um, fit, whatever that that means, then, uh, you know, you will get buy-in.
0: So one thing I want to ask is, well, you, you hear lots about getting buy-in. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's sometimes hard to articulate, especially people that, kind of almost do it naturally and build them relationships quite naturally. So it, yeah. it is quite hard to define what you do and what you don't do, given yeah. it, it, it often comes, uh, you know, naturally to, to you. Yeah. But is there anything that, anything that stands out to you that you're aware of that enabled you to get, I know you said you were pushing against that open door, yeah. but enabled you to get that bind from Andy Flower and and the captain to be able to drive that at home and be a part of that changing culture
1: um yeah i think coming from a two two things coming from a rugby background uh, really helped because they were they were keen to as well as doing individual sort of see they were keen to uh, engage in activities that sort of um where there was some sort of shared hardship, so sort of uh, some sort of you know really tough session in unpleasant sort of circumstances, where cricketers are not normally engaged in so, so sessions in the rain, sessions on the sand, and and so on. Um, again, the uh, uh, relationship I had with Steve James at Glamorgan was an important one because. Andy Flower and Steve James were very close friends from the from their cricketing the days because Steve went over to Zimbabwe for a number of winters to, to to play cricket. So that relationship with Steve and obviously Steve was Steve was speaking to Andy. Andy was asking him about this guy that he didn't know very much about, and obviously and I, 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 Steve gave me a sort of uh, some uh, give Andy some positive feedback on my on my behalf. So. Uh, Talking to them, what are we going to do? What are you looking at trying to achieve? Trying to understand what it was they wanted, or a bit. Ra- I think as a young S and would have I would have been more inclined to go and tell them what they needed, rather than speaking to them about what it was they wanted and then trying to develop that. Right. So I think if you try and impose something, it, it can be quite difficult unless unless it works immediately. Whereas I think. Uh, we're trying to, If they know we're trying to develop something, trying to sort of, uh, create um, things that are going to benefit their performance based on what their need is, I think that's that's a good place to start. And I think over time, I think you have to work on the relationship with the head coach. Uh, you have to develop a rapport. You have to build their confidence in you, and that that comes from being, uh, I think, from being consistent and demonstrating your competence over time. So I think I think that time element is is very very important, and I think I think you need to make sh- particularly in the early days of that relationship you need to make sure that you don't break any trust or they don't you don't give them an opportunity for them to lose com- or doubt your ability or lose confidence. I think you have to sort of Build on that eventually i think you can you get the stage where your relationship is strong enough to sort of uh, have a few where you can where they can be a few issues and you can overcome them but i think early doors if you lose someone's confidence i think it's very difficult to regain
0: it mm-hmm. one thing I, th- I thought was interesting right at the start of what you just said then was that that shared hardship yeah that the the cricketers was the cricketers wanting that or the coaches wanting that with regards to flipping that culture?
1: Uh, Andy Strauss was there. I think Andy and um, Andy Strauss and um, uh, Andy Flower we were very tight. They worked very well together. And I think they sort of uh, came up with this together where they both saw the benefits of it, where you would expose people and put them under pressure in, by. Uh, fatiguing them like prior to batting sessions so it's very difficult to simulate test match conditions in a net or uh, so they so we do sessions to put them under pressure expose them to some sort of uh, uh, conditioning activity and then put them into the into the net so they were in it they able to make and these andy flowers big thing was making decisions under pressure so being able to do that uh, to face 90 mile an hour bowling uh, in the nets, when you're fatigued, when you're hot, with all your kit on etc., was was very was a big part of what you saw about sort of developing resilience and mental, the mental toughness you needed to needed to uh, ha- demonstrate when you're playing in a test match cricket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Did, sorry, and the shared hardship thing was was about uh, so the culture of the team more than anything, so that so that. Um, as you say, I think, I think there was a suggestion that cricketers in general or and particularly the sort of England cricketers were a little s- s- softer on the edges. I don't agree with that necessarily because I, I, you know, I saw them um, succeed in, in the most strainer circumstances. But the perception was that. And I think building a culture where they were, they, they were... It was tough. It was difficult. But they'd all been through those difficult... Uh, sessions together uh, created a, a bond amongst them that uh, that that did uh, stand mm-hmm. us in good stead and the results proved that it worked i guess but yeah they, yeah well they did my first my first test match um funny enough was uh, a home test match in Cardiff. so i i i, I, I <laughs> walked to work so I, I, live, I live about 200 meters away from the from the ground so my first test match was that uh, test match uh, where uh, uh, Monty Parnassar and um, Jamie Anderson sort of batted out 10 overs at the end of the game to save the game. You know, and that showed that from two bowlers who weren't renowned, let's say, for their batting expertise, the resilience they showed there was uh, was remarkable against what was a, you know, a strong a really strong uh, Australian, uh, Australian side. And then subsequently going out to Australia, which is when uh, after a period of time where we had an an opportunity to sort of do more work on this, on the strength and conditioning side of things, but also on the shared hardship process, was um, was, to win out there for the first time, I think it was in 28 years or whatever, that test series was was a Mm -hmm. phenomenal
0: achievement. Cool. So just changed tact completely. Um, and just move back into the mm-hmm. present with the with uh, with the dragons I just want to talk yeah. about um, the monitoring side of things that you're that you do down at the dragons um, and just to yeah. get a bit of an overall picture of kind of developing that monitoring strategy and then we'll we'll kind of dive into yeah. the, the intricacies of it
1: yeah okay so just to give you a bit of background on, on my sort of my philosophy around around that I think it, it comes again uh, from my time in cricket to a certain we, we monitored uh, workloads uh, particularly fast bowlers break down often and uh, there was a there was a big drive to um, okay, monitor their workloads because the the perception was that excessive workload uh, was a risk, and that's not particularly a word, word I particularly like to be honest, a risk in terms of um, injuries. And so the, they were imposed a monitoring uh, program in order to uh, prevent injuries as an as a, as a injury prevention mechanism. So, uh, having recorded those uh, workloads for over a number of years with the, the senior team, um, there were, there were a few observations that I, that I had, and one is what we can't, we can't at an elite level, I don't think necessarily the, the focus should be on injury prevention. I think injury prevention is part of the process, but the overall thing is should be, the overall focus should be on improved performance. So we need to look at what it is these guys need to deliver at the elite level where they are currently what the workers are currently and how we get from where we are now from to where we need to be safely and we've got a plan to do that and that's the sort of principle we apply at the, at at the dragons as well and it sort of, sort of coincides with uh, a lot of the things a lot of the work that tim gavard has done since and he initially started in cricket and so on uh but we tend to look at um the worst-case scenario that we are presented with in a game. So, for example, we played out in... Um, played out in uh, Connaught uh, last season. We kicked the ball off and there was a five-minute continuous passage of play. So that, for us, is the sort of most extreme in terms of... Uh, in terms of um, uh, workload in a block of time that we can be presented with. So what we're trying to do is um, look at... What it is you do within those passages of play, and then try and prepare the players accordingly. So rather than having an, a sort of focus in, we do fo- we do record the average across the session and so on, but in terms of intensity. But in terms of, uh, uh, we also look at sorry the um, phases of play. The phases we are uh, phases of um, work during training, and make sure that those phases replicate. When we're working in those phases, we are replicating the demands of the game, and that's uh, we get feedback on that on a sort of uh, individual basis on, uh, for each session
0: uh, and um, uh, throughout the week. So it's gonna take a very quick break in the chat with Hugh. So in part two coming up, um, you can look forward to some chat around GPS, um, how Hugh at the Dragons manages the worst case scenario, as well as some um, some conditioning drills that he uses to tick certain boxes that they feel are important um, and in terms of the conditioning side of things and how that links in nicely with his relationship with Bernard, uh, the head coach. But just before we get into part two, um, Coach Me Plus sponsored this episode today. So massive thanks to the guys at Coach Me Plus. Um, Coach Me Plus is an athlete management platform um, that you can have a little look and dig a little bit deeper into at coachmeplus.com. So big thanks to them guys. So over to part two with you. hope you enjoy. Again, I would love your feedback um, and I will speak to you soon. So, that worst case scenario, is that, that's a five minute block in a game, or is it?
1: Well, what, what we, what so far, that's the worst case we've had of a continuous passive play is five minutes. So, we've looked at typically how many phases there are in a game, uh, you, and how many phases there are between north and 30 seconds, 30 and 60 seconds, 60 and 90 seconds, then 90 seconds plus. So the five-minute passage of play is a, was a real outlier. So what we tend to do is to go maybe two or three-minute blocks with minute recovery, and then and then try and replicate that. Uh, repeat that. Sorry.
0: So you're looking to hit the intensities of, of going above, over and above that worst-case scenario. Are you looking at kind of okay? Yeah. Looking at percentages of of that, depending on when. So, the, by the way. Yes. Yeah.
1: So 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 if you look at. Typically, uh, across the, uh, across a game, uh, typically, uh, players will run between six and eight kilometres. Uh, we also look at their high-speed running loads, which again is another important important factor. When we come to come to training, what we were looking at previously was average across the whole session. We thought, we felt this was quite a while ago that we felt that that actually wasn't telling us very much. So what we looked at was the sort of, as I said, we had a breakdown in the number of phases, uh, phases between certain times in a game. And during the, during those phases of 90 seconds, two minutes, what is the, what meters per second are the guys working at there? And then try and replicate that uh, in our training sessions. And obviously we uh, talked about um, uh, sort of getting to sort of that intensity safely. We would sort of ramp that up over a period of time, over a, over a period of weeks. So it's also important that they're, they're able to sort of complete the session uh, and execute the skills that they are required to execute um, effectively. So once they get so fatigued that the skills are breaking down, uh, then I think that that's counterproductive. So you need to get the balance right between the intent, make sure the intensity of the session is is high uh, and the duration is not so long that they're unable to perform. Uh, the skills they need to, I think. Done in that way, I think you get a double whammy. One, you get a, a conditioning effect, but also you get to develop your skills under pressure. So I think you, I think uh I
0: think you get a double whammy from a from a development skills aspect, and from a conditioning mm-hmm. aspect. With that worst case scenario, are you looking at, at the team as a whole? Are you breaking that into units? Like the worst case scenario for a certain group of players, certain position? It de- okay. d-
1: yeah, it depends. Depends. Depends on the uh, on the on the session we're doing so if we're doing a a team-based session obviously um, within that you can uh, if you've got opposition in there you can actually be very specific in terms of uh, replicating the demands of the game for each position and for each individual in in each position and we also look at developing um, uh, uh, specific aspects of the game particularly for our front five where we try and incorporate um, uh, so the, the, the Bernard's name for his is isim, it says i-simulate, so simulating um, sections of the game, so they're where they would typically the front five would start the game with some form of isometric work, so there'd be a, a, a scrum or a line out with a drive, and then sort of adding into that blocks of running, try to replicate the movement patterns they're doing with some contact type work, so sort of down ups or hitting bags or uh, driving prowlers or so on, and they're trying to replicate the work-rest ratios they would have in a game and then uh, and, and then try and extend that for the period of time that they are actually operating on those in worst-case scenario. The next thing we do is monitor how much speed work we do throughout the week and ensure that this replicates the demands the game places on each player from each position. For forwards, for example, this would mean that they work primarily on acceleration-based work through sort of 10 to 20 meters. Whereas for backs, and particularly outside backs, whereas for backs we look at slightly longer distances, maybe 40 to 60 meters, where we look to achieve maximum velocities and replicate what they do in a game. The purpose of this is uh, twofold: one, we want to obviously improve performance, but also we believe that by running fast there's a protective element to it as well. Thirdly we monitor the total running volume the players do uh, across the week and we know what this looks like from a four five and six day turnaround for each positional group. Based on this we know whether we need to top certain players up or whether we need to reduce the volume and it's also very useful when it comes to ensuring that the workload of players returning from injury is ramped up appropriately, so they return to play in an optimal condition and also able to tolerate the demands of full training weeks.
0: How how involved is Bernard? It sounds like he is involved in that, obviously in that physical aspect, but I'm guessing given the chat that we had for the first 20 minutes, your relationship with him yeah. is good enough to be able to, for him to get involved in your stuff and you to have an input into his stuff yeah
1: yeah oh absolutely i think uh, bernard is bernard is coming in and, he, and one of his uh, main focuses has been sort of uh, driving the culture driving the standards driving and and one of the one of his first one of the first lines he used which uh, stuck with me was uh, being world class uh, being world class at working hard which i thought was excellent because you know it doesn't take any skill all that takes is the right attitude And that's very much part of the Dragons culture now is is um, everybody works hard, uh, and it's no excuse it's no excuses so um, we do discuss with the coaching staff uh, the types of activities we can include Um, I think within any organization I think you need to have for an effective team you need to have some broad clarity so people need to know what they're responsible for delivering and, and be um, accountable for delivering that. So the S&C team are, are responsible for delivering the appropriate uh, conditioning activities, and if they don't, if the players are not up to scratch, then, then they should be held accountable to do it. But I think that uh, in an effective team, also uh, being challenged by other members of the team, so other coaches. Uh, and supported by other members of the team is also really important. So if if uh, Bernard sees something that he doesn't agree with, then you know, he, he'll he challenge it and we'll, it'll be a, up to us to ensure that what we are delivering is, is – we need to sort of make sure that we are confident that what we're delivering mm-hmm. is up to scratch.
0: One thing that's interesting there for me personally is, um, is the role clarity. How do you ensure that yeah. that is uh, adhered to? And everyone's crystal clear what they're doing and what they're not doing. So I think it's easy for it's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to yeah. manage successfully in practice, especially day to day when things are getting yeah, things are getting yeah. tough. Recently,
1: we've had um, uh, several new appointments. We've increased the num- um, numbers of staff that uh, we have working for us at the Dragons, and uh, with that, with the increased numbers, I think that it becomes even more important that there's. Uh, uh, role clarity. Uh, we've had uh, been fortunate enough to have a company come in and do some work with us around establishing uh, a purpose and a mission, uh, and we are all clear on, on what on what it is that we want to achieve. And uh, now what I've, we've done some work recently underpinning that that every each department has got the um, got a mission that they need to deliver. So, for example, the S and C team, we need to sort of ensure that. Um, uh, our players are exceeding uh, the national standards for strength and conditioning, so each of the is a, a nice easy one it's nice, some nice objective markers, the, each of the regional sides will be tested that data will be shared so we can benchmark ourselves against the other regions and against the, the national team so it's quite easy to sort of work out uh, how we're doing so as I said each of the departments will have a clear uh, mission what it is they're responsible for delivering and underpinning that we've just done some work around okay everybody in the in the uh, group has looked at okay so within that what is it that I'm responsible for delivering so they've been involved in the process of describing uh, doing their own job description and those are just being collated uh, to make sure that there's Clarity around everybody's clear on what their role is, and also clear on everybody else's role is. You know, we're quite. Ha- I'm quite happy for there to be some sort of uh, slight overlap or or some sort of discussion, uh, 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 so because there will be overlap on certain things. But I think what we need to get to a stage is where that that, that doesn't create conflict so we need to get to a position where we are integrated and we're all working towards a sort of common goal so particularly like the SNC visit team working together on rehabs for example who's in charge when so we got clarity around who's taking who's responsible for this stage of the rehab uh, when the, what happens uh, what's the marker for that next stage to begin and who's responsible for that who delivers it so so we're going to work around on that uh, uh, for each area so that there is uh, an understanding of who's responsible for delivering what and when
0: because in business that's that's a big thing core values business values all these kind of things yeah. and he's obviously yeah, yeah oftentimes driven from the top but who's who's driving it in at the dragons is that coming from the coach is that coming from kind of board level is that coming from you guys Where's that? Where's that been driven from? So,
1: we've done that. We've d- done something similar mm-hmm. previously, but we but we did it as a as a, as a rugby department. So, it was, um, I think, what's important is that it's a business wide uh, approach that everybody in the business understands what it is uh, it is that we want to deliver as a business. We've recently, I you know, had some had a new uh, chairman, and he has just appointed a, a new board, and uh, I think they'll be very much part of part of this and and driving things forward for us in order to achieve uh, what it is we, we intend to achieve. But the the initial initial uh, drive behind this came from um, I think the rugby department and. Uh, uh, we were keen to establish what what is it that we want to what is it we want to achieve over the next few years. What what is our purpose? What do we want to do, and uh, uh, how? And then, independent that is, uh, how we are going to do it? What strategies we going to employ in order to achieve those?
0: Cool. Well, I know we're um, we're probably over the time that I said I'd keep you. But uh, where can people uh, get to get to hear more about you are you a, are you a social media type of guy? Oh no! Uh,
1: I, so I I am on I am on Twitter, but more to more to make sure my sons are not saying anything untoward, <laughs> really. But I do I I, I do use uh, I am on Twitter, but um, as I said, I'm a sort of a bit of a stalker rather than a
0: contributor. No, that's all good. So people can people can find you on Twitter. Perfect. That's all. Yeah. That's all good. That's the the main place. Yeah. For me to uh, drive people to, yeah. so no, that's good. I I really appreciate your time, and I really appreciate your your insights into uh, what you're currently doing and past experiences and whatnot. So really appreciate it, Hugh. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And we'll uh, we'll keep in touch, and I'll uh, I'll speak to you soon. Great. Thanks you. Thanks. Cheers you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 159 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So a massive thanks to Hugh for giving up his time to come on the podcast and share some of his experiences working in, uh, working as a teacher, uh, working in cricket, and then finally with the Dragons in rugby. So big thanks to Val Performance, Coach Me Plus, and Force Dex for sponsoring this episode today. If it wasn't for them guys, the podcast could not run in its current form. So thanks for tuning in. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and a couple that have been long-awaited guys that I've been stalking to get on the podcast. So keep an eye out. So thanks for tuning in again, and I'll speak to you soon.